0: The next train at Platform 6 is the 0852 Scotrail service to Glasgow Central, calling at Pollock Shields East, Queens Park, Cross Hill, Mount Florida, Cathcart, Langside, Pollockshaws East, Shalins, Maxwell Park, and Pollock Shields West. This train is formed of three coaches. <music>
1: Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, The Barefoot Backpacker, a middle aged Denby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the wise behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture beyond the brochure. Music We've now passed the summer solstice, and the daylight is getting shorter. I mean, not that you'd know at the moment, as it's still daylight at both 5 a.m. and 9:45 p.m. But it will shrink slowly, surely, inexorably. I often think I'd prefer to live somewhere where it was pretty much sunrise about 7 a.m. and sunset about 7 p.m. every day all year. But that would involve living in places with 40 degree heat and rains so intense they wash the roads away. So you know, life is full of compromises. I'm. Rereading my housekeeping instruction from my previous pod in order to get a baseline for this one. And one of the things I mentioned then was Google Analytics. Well, as of now, the old version of J has indeed stopped reporting and collecting data, and I'm having to work entirely with the new versions in my paid job. And, you know, very late last month, I came to a conclusion that the best way for me to handle the change between the versions was uh, not to handle it at all. Stop trying to recreate things in the new version and just pretend that the old version had pretty much never existed. This was incredibly liberating, as it meant I no longer had to force New GA to do what it wasn't designed to do, and instead I was kind of just starting afresh. It did mean having difficult conversations with my stakeholders, but they all seemed to be fairly favourable to the change, perhaps surprisingly, possibly because I kept highlighting the flexibility and the, and now you can do this, so interactive, see how easy it is to do things, which they were all in favour of. Conclusion, change can be very useful if managed correctly. Slash me glares at Twitter. And speaking of Twitter, TweetDeck, the much maligned Twitter client operated by Twitter themselves and which has looked like something out of 2012 for at least the last six years, got an overhaul and now looks ugly and works slightly less well in practice, even if more functionality has been added to it. I hear this is in preparation for making it a paid product, which a should something should have been done at the very start of the Twitter blue fiasco, as it's you know the one product that actually people would be keen to use if it worked, and b gives me a very difficult choice to make. Many of my travel Twitter buddies have moved to Threads, which, I mean, that's cool for them, but I have two Twitter accounts and only one Instagram account. And also, Threads is currently not available on desktop or the web, but rather only via app, and the vast majority of my Twitter time is spent while I'm on my computer. I'm not planning to venture into Threads just yet, then. Maybe when they add that functionality. I am using Discord slightly more, by which I mean I'm actively typing in more than one server now, Part of me wonders if setting up a Discord server for this podcast would work as a community venture. I know the pod has a Facebook group, but I always feel it exists, because I dislike Facebook's user interface, so I never get the urge to do much there. I could always join Reddit. Ah! What else? Oh, I took a day trip to Manchester last week, for reasons, and in one fell swoop ensured the boundary between Manchester and Salford boroughs reached the top ten on the list of borders I have crossed on land. Well, in this case, mainly on bridges, but you know what I mean. But I will talk more about the significance of that trip next time. And it will be next time. I'm sure some of you can guess already. Aside from that, I've no other tales to tell. I've still not done any running yet, though I have at least volunteered at Parkrun once since my last pod. And I went to the doctors, well, the hospital recently, to have an MRI scan, which was quite interesting. It's like, you know, being in a tunnel, making a noise that sounds a bit like the opening bars to 1980s techno music. Um, but I didn't actually go into it, it was just lurking around my leg. I'll get the results in a couple of weeks, so we'll see what happens there. Anyway, um, as for walking, I've I've been busy on Saturdays, actually. Uh, Laura was up for two weeks, and one of the Saturdays we went hiking over in Inverclyde with one of her friends. It was mainly a longer route I'd done in April last year, though we also took a peek into the delightful Clydeside town of Greenwich. Remember, everywhere is interesting. And Grenwick is interesting enough to be a cruise ship port, which, not going to lie, confused us greatly. Anyway, speaking of everywhere being interesting, and with some inspiration from the Round Round We Go podcast, let's talk about part of Glasgow Southside. Please listen for announcements on board the train. Glasgow has a remarkable number of railway stations for a city of its size, something I noticed when I first moved here. Indeed, I worked out that within a mile of the flat I moved into, there were 10 railway stations on nominally three different routes, and I figured that using the railway stations as waypoints, I could define whether I'd been to and explored a different part of the city region by whether I'd walked past the railway station there. The majority of those 10 railway stations nearby me though are on a line known as the Cathcart Circle. It's a kind of loop line starting at Glasgow Central Railway Station and goes around bits of Glasgow South Side, which is that part of Glasgow immediately south of the River Clyde. Southside itself is much larger than the Cathcart loop and includes areas like Gorbals and Tradeston, though the latter is these days a largely post-industrial wasteland and, coincidentally, trading estates. Uh, the Cathcart in the railway route name, which is not pronounced Cathcart according to Scotrail, is a suburb of Glasgow about four and a half kilometres or two point eight miles south of Glasgow Central, and it's the most southerly point of the loop line. The loop line itself is around 5.2 miles or 8.4 kilometres in length starting and finishing at slightly different points in the suburb of Strathbungo which is a great name and you'd have thought because Strath means river valley it would be the river valley of Bungo. There is no Bungo River so no one knows why it's called Strathbungo. Trains on the Pollock Shield's west side of the loop go past Pollock Shield's east station like you can actually see it right there from the train window and they split from the main line to Kilmarnock just to the south. Indeed, the two Pollock Shield stations are only about 500 metres from each other in a straight line, around four row junctions away along Darnley Street. There used to be a station on the Kilmarnock Line here too, disappointingly called Strathbungo and not, say, Pollock Shield South, but that closed in 1962. Although planned as one loop, the line was built in two stages. The eastern side, from Strathbungo to Cathcart via Mount Florida, was constructed first and opened in 1886. The western side, through shorelands, followed in 1894. There were technical, legal and logistical reasons for this, but importantly, at the time, the eastern side had a larger population. A map from around 1900 shows villages like Cathcart and Pollockshores being pretty much one road and a handful of buildings on the edge of the countryside. Although it's designed as a loop line, these days not many trains use it as such. Rather, extensions in the Cathcart area means that trains on the western loop tend to travel on east to Newton in South Lanarkshire, from where you can pick up connections to Hamilton and Motherwell, while trains on the Eastern Loop go southwest to the southern suburbs of Glasgow and end at the east Renfrewshire village of Nielston. An odd place to stop, if you look at it on a map, but back in the day this line extended all the way to the coast at Ardrossen. Stations beyond Nielston closed in 1962, as it was effectively a duplicate of the Kilmarnock line that runs through Strathbungo. Note that because half the circle ends in Nelson and half the circle ends in Nielston and the two names vibe quite similar to a Glaswegian, on the display boards at Glasgow Central, Neilston Station is always displayed enclosed in angled brackets or chevrons, just to make sure you can tell the difference. Note also that, despite Cathcart being the nominal centre of the loop, Cathcart Station itself isn't accessible by all trains. Only those on the actual loop, or more commonly on the line from Glasgow to Neilston via the eastern side, stop there. This is a design feature. The line to Nelson in the east was never designed originally for passengers to use Cathcart Station, which means these days, outside of peak times, getting from Cathcart to, say, Langside requires either a complicated movement potentially involving two changes at Mount Florida and Kings Park, or walking. It's only about 1,100 metres. It's flat. It's fine. The Cathcart Circle itself goes through the following stations in order. Clockwise. Pollock Shields East, Queen's Park, Cross Hill, Mount Florida, Cathcart, Langside, Pollock Shores East, Shorelands, Maxwell Park and Pollock Shores West. Yes, it's easy to get the two Pollock Shield stations mixed up. To confuse matters even more, the line to Kilmarnock that goes between them also has a station of its own at Pollock Shores West, making four very similar named stations that even the rail staff have to pause for a second while selling tickets on the train before making sure they're putting in the right one into their machines. All the stations have ticket machines on site, usually on the platforms, but none have ticket barriers. It's possible to buy tickets on the train, or at Glasgow Central, before the ticket barrier's there, and many people do, often because the ticket machines at the stations only take card payments, and sometimes don't work at all. There's been talk over the recent decades of converting the Cathcart Circle Line into a light rail or metro system. In one way it makes some sense, since the stations are incredibly close together for a mainline system. The only reason it's not possible to see, say, Shorelands and Pollock Shores East at the same time is because the line bends slightly between them. It's not clear what would happen to the Nelton or Nielston trains if this happened, or even if they'd be included in the plan. It's not for me to work out. But this is not a history railway pod. It is a travel pod. So let's ride the line and talk about the places it travels through. Because everywhere is interesting, and more people should explore their local area a bit more. You never know what you might find.
0: This is Pollock Shields East. If you are asked to produce a ticket and are unable to do so, you may wish to consider alternative transport modes to reach your destination.
1: Heading clockwise around the line, the first station reached is Pollock Shields East. When I was plotting my visits to Glasgow area railway stations, this was, for many months, the nearest station to the flat I'd never walked past, simply because I would never really had a need to. There's a lot of stations in the area and I'd been past all of the other ones so I'd already walked a lot around the locale. On the displays at Glasgow Central Pollock Shores East is usually followed with change for the tramway. This is not an indication that Glasgow has a tram system as well as a hundred odd railway stations but rather it refers to the tramway theatre whose name derives from it occupying a former tram depot, one of the main depots in fact, that was in use as such from 1893 to the early 1960s. Their website describes themselves as a renowned international arts venue with an interdisciplinary spirit whose mission is to enrich and inspire our communities by providing ambitious, innovative and culturally relevant contemporary visual art and performance. And while quite wordy, what that means is that it provides a home for creative arts of all types, from painting to dance, sculpture to movie, and provide both a working space for artists and an exhibition area for them to display their works. Indeed, at the start of this year, I assisted a student at one of the arts colleges in Glasgow with their multimedia dissertation project on the positive parts of being non-binary or trans, which they then displayed at the tramway. Dance, in particular, is well attested at the theatre, as it occupies the same building as the home of Scottish Ballet, meaning it's one of the best places in the city to watch a performance. Not that I have ever, you know, mind you, because being honest, dance itself has never really caught my eye. I think it's because I'm not a visual person and at least with film there's an audio track so I don't have to be watching it to get a gist of what's going on. Next to the ballet building are the hidden gardens. Hidden because they're kind of behind the complex, accessed through a small service road and a metal gate of the kind that you'd usually find blocking the route to an office building on a commercial park. The idea behind the hidden gardens is to provide a quiet sanctuary from the inner city suburbs as well as providing an opportunity for people to learn about nature that they may otherwise not get a chance to see. Their vision statement, as taken from their website, says their aims to create a society where people live, play, learn, participate and celebrate together in peace. Though not that big, there's a lot to take in. From the design, which reflects the history of the site and includes an old industrial chimney and tram lines, but is also structured to bring to mind paths taken around religious sites, to the plants themselves, which include both native Scottish and imported varieties of pines and ruins and trees like that. The medium cultures in the garden reflects the various cultures and demographics present in Pollock Shields as a whole. The local council ward, for instance, is reputed to be one of the most ethnically diverse in the whole of Glasgow. 69% white, 27% Asian, 2% black and 1% mixed and other. I'll talk a bit more about that later though. An example of this inside the garden is there's a ginkgo biloba tree which though now incredibly rare used to grow worldwide back in the day and by the day I mean the late Jurassic period so it's near extinction isn't necessarily down to humans. It's been planted here to represent the peoples of the world because it was a worldwide tree in, back in the day and to reinforce that stones from Mount Sinai are at its base that location being pretty important to the entirety of the Abrahamic religions. Not that that would matter to their neighbours. On the other side of the far wall of the Hidden Gardens, between it and Pollock Shields' East Railway Station, is Gurdwara Guru Granth Sab sikh Sav, more commonly known as Glasgow Gurdwara, a large Sikh temple and community centre. It opened in 2013 to replace a smaller venue on nearby Nithsdale Road, which made it closer to Pollock Shields' West. The sources are contradictory as to which it was, but one of the two is believed to have been the first purpose-built gurdwara in Scotland. The new building can accommodate up to 1,500 worshippers, although the newer gurdwara near Kelvin Grove Park in Glasgow's West End, which opened in 2016, is bigger. This gurdwara is built on the site of an old rail depot and contains, in addition to the worship area, a computer room, library, golden dome, advice and support services, educational and music classes, and, as you would expect from a Sikh community centre, a large kitchen, serving free vegetarian meals for the community and passing visitors. Because, as I said in the London pods, this is a basic tenet of Sikh beliefs. You don't even get a wafer biscuit at an Anglican church. The last thing of note in the area is on the other side of the main Pollock Shores Road, heading into Govan Hill. It's a building at 31-33 to Coplaw Street, dating from 1884, expanded in 1903, designed by the architect John Benny Wilson. It's known as Drill Hall, is now an apartment block, but when built, served as the headquarters of the 3rd Lanarkshire Rifle Volunteer Corps. While the building itself is worth a look if you walk past, and there's still allegedly the battalion's crest on it on the wall, it's the battalion themselves who are more notable in terms of Glasgow's Southside history. But not for the reason you might expect.
0: This is Queen's Park. Please disregard a person running barefoot.
1: Queen's Park Station stands on Victoria Road, one of the many popular thoroughfares in Glasgow Southside that's lined with shops, cafes, independent boutiques and pubs. At the time of podding, two unusual businesses in the area were a Jewish vegan queer anarchist pay-what-you-can cafe and a queer intersensional bookshop that also does a fine line in retro badges and patches. Glasgow Southside is very definitely an alternative place. Very me. What I also find amusing is, a couple of buildings north of the station entrance on Victoria Road is a Victorian era building, quite grand, looks like it should be a small bank. Well, it is a bank, it's a branch of the Bank of Scotland. But above the long window on the upper floor is a phrase, Christ died for our sins, in huge lettering. I just like the juxtaposition of a religious tract above a bank. Someone has been reading a bit too much into Matthew chapter 21, I suspect. Queen's Park doesn't just refer to the district but more to the large public park just to the south of the station. As an aside, given that Victoria Road ends with a large gateway into the park and then continues along a tree-lined avenue within, up to a flight of very wide stairs, you might be forgiven for thinking that the park is named after Queen Victoria. And you'd be... wrong. It is in fact named after Mary Queen of Scots, for reasons that will become apparent over the course of several of these stations. It's 60 hectares in size, whatever that is, just slightly smaller than Disneyland apparently, or, for Indian listeners, the size of the Eden Gardens Cricket Ground. It's bigger than the Vatican by a third, too. It was laid out by Sir Joseph Paxton in the mid-1800s. He was the chap who designed the Crystal Palace in London, making him presumably one of the few people to have lived indirectly named two football teams. As parks go, it's quite unusual, given that it's quite varied. Most city parks in the UK tend to be quite mundane, with paths of cement or gravel separating out large areas of lawn. On the edges might be trees or bushes, and they're often quite flat. Maybe there's a boating lake. It all tends to feel quite open, slightly dull. Queen's Park is... not. For one thing, there's a huge hill in it with a flagpole on top. Or at least it feels like a huge hill when you're on lap 3 of Parkrun. It's about 60 metres high and the elevation gain from the start of the lap is 35 metres. The views from the flagpole, which does not have a flag on it, are pretty good across the east of Glasgow, from hills near Loch Lomond all the way round to points beyond Cathkin Bray in the south-east. There's not great views to the west because there's a load of trees in the way. By trees, by the way, it feels like uh, you know a veritable ancient woodland on the side of a hill with quiet, burly, perceptible, muddy trails in lieu of paths that you really should watch out unless you slip over them. And the feeling that at some point you'll be whisked away by elves. It's remarkably quiet given where it is. In amongst the trees are the remains of an Iron Age fort, though this requires a bit of imagination. At the bottom of the hill are more solid paths, but even so it feels more like a woodland walk than a park stroll. Meanwhile, on the other side of the park are sports facilities, an overgrown pitch and put site that's now mainly used by dogs, and a wide council access road that feels bigger than the roads outside it. Also in the park are a rose garden from the World Rose Convention of 2003. Who knew that was a thing? which is in part dedicated to Scottish poets of the last 500 years, some of whom are commemorated on, of all things, litter bins. Don't know if that's quite how I'd like to be remembered. There's a tree dedicated to the 20th anniversary of the founding of the UN, and next to it, one commemorating the Halajba massacre in 1988 in Iraq. There's a plant nursery in Glasshouse, currently closed, awaiting renovations. And not one, but two small lakes, mostly occupied by ducks, although there's a couple of modern art sculptures in and around one of them. In winter the ponds freeze over and the park run gets cancelled because of ice on the slopes. As mentioned earlier, Queen's Park is also the name of the local football club, the oldest in Scotland and the 10th oldest in the world. They don't actually play in Queen's Park anymore, but a little way to the east, but I'll come on to that in the next section. They were founded in 1867 and remained resolutely amateur until 2019, despite playing often in the upper echelons of a professional league system. This may say more about Scottish football than about the club's principles. They play in a black and white striped kit and are therefore not to be confused with Queen's Park Rangers FC who have a blue and white striped kit and play in London. As an aside, given Queen's Park FC's forays into the English FA Cup, they reached the final twice losing to the Blackburn Rovers both times, I did try and research if the two sides had ever played each other. Given that there's also a club in Scotland called simply Rangers, you can imagine how fraught that web search was. They were founded at a flat called No. 3 Eglinton Terrace, which... Well, the address no longer exists due to renumbering, but the site exists. It's uh, now a flat above the Victoria pub on Victoria Road, not far from the station. A small doorway into a Grade B listed building, though it's not listed for that reason, with no indication that this is where Scottish football kind of started. Maybe they should have called themselves Victoria FC. I've never been to that pub. Maybe I ought... This is
0: Cross Hill. Due to operational problems please disregard any public address
1: announcements and please take extra care when getting on and off trains. Cross Hill station is the one on the line I've walked past the least. This is because it's located at a point just to the northeast of Queen's Park that I never really need to go past. From the flat I'd either hit Cathcart Road further south or I'd be wandering through Govan Hill much further north to go past the station itself would mean I'd be taking a somewhat awkward route that doesn't make much practical sense other than to go past Crosshill Station. The area around it though I've been to quite a bit as two junctions south of the station is Queen's Park Recreation Ground, a flat open grassy area often used by sports teams for training and which feels like an extension of Queen's Park itself. These days the area around Crosshill Station is largely residential. It's another shopping area in Southside, Cathcart Road heading north towards Gorbals and Lauriston, not yet as gentrified as points to the west. This will happen. However, at the time the Cathcart Circle was built, it was not housing that brought people to the area, but a different kind of ball game. And although it is now housing, the area around Holybrook Street, just northeast of the station, was the site of Cathkin Park, the original home stadium for one of the leading football clubs in the early days of Scottish football, Third Lanark. The team were formed from a local army rifle regiment, hence the name. Yes, the very same regiment who occupied the drill hall near Pollock Shields East Railway Station. Told you it wasn't what you might have expected. Early football clubs tended to evolve from other organisations. The list of clubs formed from the armed services, church congregations, industrial works teams, or even from other sports, often cricket, as we'll see later, is huge and probably deserves its own podcast. At the same time, Queen's Park FC were playing their home games at Hamden Park which was located a couple of blocks south of what became Crosshill Station. This was not just believed to be the first football stadium in the UK, and by inference of the world, which was enclosed and accessed via turnstiles rather than being open-sided to all comers, but was also used for early, and um, we're talking 1870s and 1880s, international matches between Scotland and both England and Wales, the only countries to have international football teams at this time. However, The Cathcart Circle line itself had to be built pretty much through the site of the stadium, forcing them to move. They simply crossed to the other side of Cathcart Road to a new stadium they again called Hampden Park, or Second Hampden. The original old stadium is now partly occupied by a bowling green, and there are murals and information boards around it explaining its part in early football history. In 1903, they built a new stadium a little further south, and, keeping with the naming convention, they called it the third Hampden Park. This left their second stadium empty and third Lanark FC decided to move in. It had better facilities and it was in a better location. They renamed it New Cathkin Park because it's not just Queen's Park who had standard naming conventions. They stayed there until 1967 when, as is sadly not unique amongst lower league clubs at the times, they went bust due to financial irregularity and a dodgy chairman who seemed to profit from selling the ground for housing. He may have wanted to move the club to one of the new towns out with Glasgow. No, see also Clyde FC and Wimbledon FC. He died of a heart, convenient heart attack before he could be sentenced, but other directors were charged and fined with corruption. Except, planning permission was refused. So while the original Hampton and Cathkin Parks no longer exist, this second Hampton, then new Cathkin Park, eventually the new being dropped, still does and is used mainly these days by amateur footballers and dog walkers. The terracing around the pitch still exists, at least on three sides, despite having trees growing through it, and it feels eerie to stand on and watch people kick a ball around, almost like you're in somewhere that should be fenced off for dereliction. It looks overgrown and unloved, but really it's used more or less like a standard park, just one with a more unusual setting. It also feels weird to be walking on a pitch that, within living memory, hosted a decent standard of Scottish League football. They were in the top flight as recently as 1965. But, you may be thinking... I've heard of Hamden Park and it's not full of trees, and none of this sounds familiar. Well, for that, we have to go one stop south.
0: This is Mount Florida. This service has been reported to be full and standing, due to overcrowding because of a football match.
1: Mount Florida Station, briefly the terminus of the line while they built it to Cathcart, is another area of Southside with a central shopping road lined with cafes, restaurants and some independent businesses, including a queer-friendly hair salon. It's also the nearest station to Victoria Hospital, just east of Queen's Park, which continues the theme in this area of, but not that Queen. It's where I've been for most of my leg-related checkups. However, it's more notable these days for being the nearest station to Hampden Park, Scotland's National Football Stadium, or more precisely, as mentioned earlier, the third Hampden Park, built in what was then open land and inconveniently on top of a small stream, Moles Mire, that runs into the nearby Whitecart Water, the main river of the area. This came to light in a recent football match when, after a short torrential shower just before kick-off, the pitch pretty much flooded. The match was delayed for an hour while they tried to dry the pitch. Mind you, they stopped it just after Scotland scored, which their opposition, Georgia, were unimpressed with. As stated, this Hamden was constructed in 1903 and it's still used, albeit it's been renovated and rebuilt, as you'd have hoped. One plan to completely rebuild it in time for a potential Men's Football World Cup bid in 2030 has been put on hold, so suddenly it won't look flash and won't have a retractable roof in the near future after all. As it currently stands, the capacity for sport is just over 51,000, lower when they use it for athletics, but higher when there are concerts. Coldplay played here about a year ago and they seem to have about 100,000 or so spectators. I walked past it around six hours before they went on stage and the pedestrianised street along it was already full of concert goers and stalls selling tat. The ground does hold some sporting attendance records though that are unlikely to be beaten. 136,000 people watched Glasgow Club Celtic play in the semi-finals of the European Cup in 1970 against the English club Leeds United which may have helped the highest ever for any UEFA competition – just over 149,000 people watched Scotland beat England 3-1 here, the highest attendance in any European international. And only venues up in South America have had larger attendances for club football matches than the 1937 Scottish Cup final, which hosted around 147,000 people. Note that when Queen's Park FC were in the fourth tier of Scottish football, they had attendances just about pushing the 1,000 barrier. Indeed, in 2013, they hosted Montrose in a match seen by 325 people. I don't know how it would feel to watch a match in such a large stadium surrounded by such a small crowd. I imagine it would be quite eerie. Anyway, despite being the home of Scottish football, Queen's Park still owned the stadium until recently as the pandemic, when they finally decided to sell up to the Scottish FA and revamp their training ground to make that their stadium which lies right next door, and it's called Hamden Park, obviously. Well, it's called Little Hamden rather than Hamden Park the Fourth, but still. The streets in the immediate vicinity are lined with standard Glaswegian tenement blocks of the kind I'll talk about later, and to this day, I don't know if that's a brilliant place to live or an awful one. Maybe it helps if you like cold play in lower league football. I don't know. Hamden Park also hosts the Scottish Football Museum, which does exactly what it says on the tin – and despite Scotland not being exactly a world power in the game anymore, is definitely worth the trip. Touted as Europe's first football museum, it includes exhibitions on the history of the game up here, including a part on women's football and a tour of the stadium itself. Despite being at the foundations of football in Scotland, this part of what is now Glasgow is much older than that, as we're now about to hear.
0: This is Cathcart. This service is delayed by approximately 50 minutes due to earlier engineering works not being finished on time.
1: As far as I can make out, the name Cathcart, which I'm not pronouncing correctly according to Scotrail as you've heard, comes from the leading landowner in the family in times gone by. Indeed, there is still an Earl Cathcart in existence although they appear to have to to Norfolk. Their ancestral home was Cathcart Castle, now a series of nondescript ruins barely identifiable in the general surrounds of Lynn Park, having been demolished in 1980 because it had lain derelict for many decades and the cost of renovation was too high. It was only a mansion anyway, not a proper castle. Slash me at Nottingham. As an aside, the family also presumably gives its name to Whitecart Water, a small river that I mentioned in passing in Mount Florida, but which will follow the course of the railway for the next few stations. This is a river despite its less than salubrious name, which rises several miles to the southeast, somewhere in the hills near East Kilbride, and runs roughly northwest eventually to Paisley and Glasgow Airport, before joining the less interesting Black Cartwater to form the river Cart, which, less than a mile later, flows into the Clyde at Renfrew. This river flows through Lynn Park, and there are two notable places en route there. Halfway down the park is Lynn Park Bridge, also known as Hapney Bridge, one of the many across the world with that epithet. It is, by all accounts, the oldest cast iron Bridge in Glasgow, having been built in the early 1800s, and its name comes from its design and not, as you might otherwise expect, a reference to an early toll. Rather, the sides of the bridge have holes in it that resemble pre-Victorian half-pennies. Slightly further north, downstream, is Snuff Mill Bridge. This lies on the edge of Lynn Park, a short walk south of Cathcart Station, and is two centuries older than Lynn Park Bridge, although it was rebuilt in the 1800s one of those cute stone bridges and nearby are some of the oldest tenement style blocks in Glasgow We're talking you know 18th century here. It's also the site of an old mill as so it was quite an important spot in the early modern history of the region. Between the two is Lynn Park Waterfalls not to be confused with Lynn Falls in Moray in the northeast of Scotland. When I walked past it for the first time I ended up chatting to a couple of shirtless teenage boys who were salmon fishing here which is not a sentence that ends how you'd expect. I'm not sure if it was legal for them to do salmon fishing but they were and I wasn't going to stop them. They're more like rapids than a full-on waterfall but they're quite cool to stand and watch for a short while especially if you've been walking along the couple of the paths through the woodlands of the park. It's these waterfalls that give the park its name though, lynn being derived from the Gaelic lynn, meaning a waterfall, pool or ravine. On the opposite side of the white cart water is Holmwood House which featured on a recent £20 note issued by Clydesdale Bank. Scottish money beyond the scope of this podcast. It's a mid-Victorian middle-class merchant house and as such is a final example of period architecture. It was designed by Alexander Thompson, a 19th century Scottish architect who was nicknamed the Greek due to his preference for recreating the style of ancient Greece in his plans and who's responsible for quite a few of the buildings in central Glasgow. The house, arguably the best example of his work, is pretty much still preserved inside as well as out. It's now owned by the National Trust of Scotland, who have vowed to preserve it as much as possible to its original decor and design. I've never been in it, but I have wandered to the outside of it. The cafe had just closed by the time I turned up. Lynn Park itself is about 80 hectares, and is the second largest park entirely, or at least mostly, within the Glasgow City area. The largest is Pollock Country Park a little way to the west. Glasgow is perhaps a surprisingly green city. Indeed, an article in the Guardian newspaper suggested that 32% Glasgow had the second most green space of any city in the UK, after Edinburgh, but this was specifically city rather than urban area based, and the UK has an overly specific definition of city. On the edge of Lynn Park is an area called Court No. This is a grassy hill surrounded by trees that would otherwise be unnotable, if a nice place for a walk, were it not for a historical legend. It is said that this is the spot that Mary Queen of Scots, she of Queen's Park fame, lest it not be forgotten, stood and looked out from where she was observing the Battle of Langside in 1568. Appropriate of anything else, I've stood at that spot and, despite the height, could barely even see Cathcart. I presume there were fewer trees back in the 16th century.
0: This is Langside, due to passengers causing a disturbance earlier in this train's journey. This service will now depart in approximately 15 minutes.
1: Glasgow has a suburb called Battlefield. It lies north of Langside Station, and to be fair is nearer Mount Florida, but regardless, and contains an ornate cafe that used to be a tram shelter, a Victorian library, several shops, an old building with ornate columns that's a pub called the Church on the Hill that was, well, you can guess, and a small cul-de-sac called Blair Hill Avenue. This small dead-end street just to the south of Queen's Park, if it were anywhere else, it would be filled with Instagrammers, but because it's in a lesser-visited suburb, a little walk from any of the cute cafes it's generally very quiet. It's a road with trees on one side and terraced housing on the other, but the housing is two-storey Victorian area with ornate bay windows and each is a different pastel colour. The entire road feels like some kind of child's box of coloured pencils. This may explain why houses here are going for nearly £540,000 when the surrounding roads are going for much less than that. It's not the most expensive street in Glasgow, though. It's about two kilometres to the northwest, Close to Blair Hill Avenue and outside the Church on the Hill, visible from the southern paths around Queen's Park, is a large column in the middle of a small roundabout. The column is the monument to the Battle of Langside. It's about 16 metres tall with a line on top with one paw on a cannonball. The sides are carved with thistles, roses and fleur-de-lis, while the pedestal base is made up of cannon, swords and several coats of arms. The latter represents those lords who fought in the battle, whilst the former is all mix of Scottish and royal iconography. It was constructed in 1887, designed by Alexander Skirving, friend of Alexander Thompson and who built the Church on the Hill in 1896, and it was sculpted by James Young, who did a number of other works in Glasgow Centre. The Battle of Langside was a decisive battle in the latter years of a separate Scottish monarchy, and was part of a small civil war between supporters and critics of the previous monarch. That monarch was the oft-mentioned Mary Queen of Scots. She'd been on the throne of Scotland for nearly 25 years at this point, albeit being only 25 years old. Her father, James V, had died when she was six days old, unusually, in such circumstances, of natural causes. And her early reign had been enacted by nobles acting as regents. So there was a history of nobles having a say in power. Anyway, Mary married her half-cousin, Lord Darnley, had a kid, naturally called James, and then... Lord Darnley died in mysterious circumstances. The person generally believed to have caused these mysterious circumstances was a chap called Lord Bothwell, who was a recent divorcee. His marriage being terminated itself on some very shaky ground. In not at all suggesting anything untoward was going on, Mary then married Bothwell. Many of the nobles, being both genre savvy and Catholic, weren't impressed with any of this, and this, along with other discontented reign, caused them to imprison her and force her abdication in favour of her infant son. She had other ideas, escaped from prison, and rested with her friend Lord Hamilton, in nearby Hamilton. She knew some nobles supported her and managed to raise an army of around 6,000 men. Her plan was to base herself in Dumbarton, northwest of Glasgow, where the fortress is high on a rock on a peninsula, fairly defensive, and where she had strong support, and to get there by avoiding Glasgow. However, her opponent, the Earl of Moray, was on the ball, so to speak, and blocked her way at Langside. The battle itself lasted less time than this podcast. It doesn't sound like it was a terribly interesting battle, resembling somewhat of an elongated rugby scrum, except with pikes. Despite having a much larger force, though, Mary's army was thoroughly routed, a 100 killed and three times that number taken prisoner, while Murray's troops are reported to have lost precisely one man. It is not recorded how or who. Mary fled to England, was imprisoned in Carlisle and spent the rest of her life waiting for Queen Elizabeth I of England her first cousin once removed, or something of that ilk to do something with her which she did, twenty years later famously The civil war that resulted lasted five years and could easily have become yet another war between France who supported Mary and England who supported Moray but in the end though, enough sabres were rattled to prevent that The regents of the infant James won out, though Murray himself had died in 1570, the first head of government to be assassinated with a firearm, Wikipedia tells me. James later became King James VI and in 1603 ended up as King of England too. But that's another story. As to the belief that Mary looked out at the battle from Court, no. It's felt by historians this was enemy territory, as the Cathcart family seemed to have been supporters of Moray, and if she had watched the battle from anywhere, it's likely to have been Prospect Hill, to the east of Mount Florida, and between where the second and third Hampden Parks would later be. And that's why Queen's Park is specifically not named after Queen Victoria.
0: This is Pollockshaw's East. We apologise for the inconvenience caused by a problem with a river bridge earlier today. In researching this
1: part, I finally discovered what shores means, as in Pollock Shores, nearby Shorelands, and the town of Wishaw near Motherwell. It's Old Scots, and it means woods, or woodland. Anyway, Pollock Shores East is the closest of the Cathcart Line stations to where I've been living for the past two years, but I don't use it as often as you'd think, because the main road with buses on is, you know, right there, and the more frequent. Shush, Laura. It's yet another road lined with shops, restaurants, pubs, not all of which feel stabby, and cute cafes. It's also here where the Curious Liquids Wine and Beer Shop Stroke Wee Bar is, where I spend much of my soft-earned money. The white cart water passes literally underneath the station, making it one of the few railway stations I know of that are built on a river, although it doesn't rival London Blackfriars for views. Sheffield Station is also built on a river, but you can't see it unless it floods. Aside from housing, and the railway here vibes like it forms a boundary between the tenements of Glasgow and the townhouses of the suburbs, there's a couple of interesting buildings in the area. In the far west, and virtually opposite Pollockshaws West Station, but that's by the by, it's 800 metres in a straight line between the two, is Pollockshaws Burgh Hall. This opened in 1898 at the behest of local politician, Sir John Sterling Maxwell, and was apparently based on the designs of the original buildings of the University of Glasgow, before the latter moved from the city to the West End. It served as the town hall for 14 years till the Glasgow Corporation annexed Park Shores when upon it was used by the local council till the 1990s. It's now a community centre offering dance and yoga classes. It also holds what their website says is Scotland's only functioning Wurlitzer cinema pipe organ. This seems to have been installed in 2007 having been moved from Clydebank Town Hall but started life many hours away in the Ritz cinema in Stockport near Manchester. There is no research that I've found out as to why Pollockshaw's Burgh Hall has a Wurlitzer from Stockport, but I assume there's reasons. Sir John Sterling Maxwell, a name you'll be hearing a lot more of on this pod, is commemorated in a nearby primary school, a large and impressive sandstone building built around 1907. Just like the Burgh Hall, he gifted the land for the school, who repaid him by naming it after him. The current building is the on-site replacement for the earlier, smaller building originally named for him. Suddenly, the school closed in 2011 and is now derelict. A bit like the Weatherspoons pub named after him just up the main road from Pollockshaws East Railway Station in the Shorland Shopping Centre, which closed in early 2023, possibly due to arguments over rent and the imminent demolition of the shopping centre anyway. My nearest Weatherspoons is now in Rutherglen, but it's just easier to wander into the city centre if you want cheap beer and a dodgy breakfast. Between the Burke Hall and Pollockshaws East Railway Station, is what at first glance appears to be a very out-of-place building. It's an old pre-Victorian clock tower, not connected to anything, and located in an otherwise empty pedestrianised square. This is all that remains of the older Burg House, built around 100 years earlier than the current one, and which serves as a courthouse, police cell, and oddly, a library and a pub. All at once, it seems. The majority of the building was demolished not long after its replacement was built, leaving just the clock tower which doesn't seem to be used for anything these days, although there is an old pub just over the road, which looks slightly stabby. Behind the clock tower is a small kern dedicated to John McLean. Not that one, it's spelt differently. He was born in Pollockshores and graduated from Glasgow University in 1904 with an MA in Political Economy. Given his studies, his environment and the popular philosophies of the time, it may come as no surprise to anyone that he made a career in left-wing thought and activism. He taught Marxist economics at the Sir John Stirling Maxwell School, indeed. Evening classes for adults, though, not to the primary school kids. Led strikes and marches, and ended up setting a consulate for the new USSR in 1917 in Glasgow. Indeed, Lenin himself is reported to have regarded him as Britain's greatest revolutionary leader. Obviously, he was arrested a few times, especially during the First World War. He died of pneumonia at the comparatively young age of 44. It's said that he'd given his only jacket to a striking worker just a few days before, and Glasgow, November, is not a place to not be wrapped up well. While not as noted as many of the socialist leaders and speakers of the time, he's nevertheless well regarded in left-wing circles, and even at his funeral thousands of local workers came out to express their memory of him. This became a yearly march for over 20 years afterwards on the first Sunday after his death day. The Kern was placed on the 50th anniversary of his death, and has a plaque which reads... In memory of John MacLean, born in Pollockshaws on the 24th of August 1879, died 30th of November 1923, famous pioneer of working-class education. He forged the Scottish link in the golden chai of world socialism. I have no idea what chai means in this context. The area around Shorland and the two Pollokshaws stations has enough microhistory to warrant a 60-page leaflet issued by Glasgow City Council called the Pollockshaws Heritage Trail. It is mostly old buildings, to be sure. I've talked about the ones on this pod, as they're the ones I'd been to prior to my discovering the leaflet's existence. It probably deserves a pod on its own. But not from me.
0: This is Shorlands. This train is delayed due to cattle on the railway.
1: There's a lot of Pollocks spoken in this pod, but this seems like the best time to explain it all. The name itself, by the way, seems to come from a Gallic word meaning pool or pit. Shorlands is the nearest railway station on the Cathcart Circle to Pollock Country Park. Pollockshaws West is closer, but as we know, that's on the line to Kilmarnock. This is the largest park in Glasgow. At 146 hectares, it's three quarters the size of Monaco, or half the size of the City of London. It's also been regarded as one of the best urban parks in the world, and certainly the only one where you like to see highland cows. It was donated to the city in 1966, on condition that it remained a park and wouldn't be built on. Which, apart from a motorway that cuts off any access from the west, aside from one footpath, they didn't. The family that owned the land was the Maxwell family, of which the aforementioned Sir John Stirling Maxwell was a notable member at the turn of the 20th century. He was the local MP, was chairman and trustee of a couple of notable fine arts organisations and was founder of the National Trust for Scotland. Despite leading landed gentry, he seems to have been very keen on allowing access to green space rather than hoarding it for personal gain. May come on to why later on. The family home was Pollock House, which still stands to stay and is visitable as part of the deal with the council. It was built in the mid-1750s and is surrounded by a large set of walled flower gardens with paths going every which way. I've got lost in them a couple of times because it's not quite as easy as you'd think to get from one side of them to the other if you're coming in from the footpath along the White Gart Water. It's possible to get almost to the water's edge and there's a stone arch bridge over it dating from the same period which looks cool in photos. Inside the house is a restaurant, museum and art gallery and is where the famous Burrell collection is on display. And at the time of podding, literally the day before I'm recording this, the Burrell Collection won an award. It won the Art Fund Museum of the Year 2023, beating off the likes of the MAC in Belfast, the Natural History Museum in London, and the Scapa Flow Museum in Orkney. It's a collection of almost 9,000 art pieces obtained over many years by local shipping magnate William Burrell, which were donated by him to the City of Glasgow in 1944. At that point, the collection was only 6,000 strong. He literally carried on afterwards until his death in 1958. And he donated it purely because he seems to have felt it was the right thing to do with them. It took the City Council the best part of 20 years to find a place to put it. The donation of Pollock House and Park proved quite serendipitous. The art includes one of the largest collection of Spanish paintings in the world, much medieval art and weaponry, sculpture, ancient and modern, and just random things he seemed to have liked. Some of it was obtained without as large a trail of receipts as you might have hoped, and two items in particular have led to restorative payments in the tens of thousands of pounds being made to German Jews who originally owned these pieces, but which were looted from them by the Nazis. The park itself feels very much like country parkland rather than an urban park. While there's some areas of open lawn, the majority of it is forested, with streams flowing through and a couple of lakes in the centre. On the western fringes of the park there aren't even many trail paths and it feels Quite remote. There's a park run here, quite popular, though with a bit too much gravel and knobbly path in one part to comfortably run it barefoot, and the size of the park means that it's one of those rare two lap courses rather than the more common three laps. On the edge, there's also a running club, a rugby club, and a cricket club. As for the Highland cows, well, there's around 50 of them in the park, and this makes it the easiest place for most of Glasgow to see them. They've been a feature of the park since the early 1800s when the Maxwell family decided it would be a really cool idea to have them around. It seems this was also for commercial purposes. The soil and land in what is now Pollock Country Park suited them more than it suited arable farming and they could breed them for show purposes and presumably stood.
0: This is Maxwell Park. The public address at this station is currently under test.
1: All the stations on the Cathcart Circle are built in the same way. Island platforms where the two lines go either side of the platform itself and with two exits. The majority of stations have an exit at either end of the platform, although some have exits on either side. The original station buildings were also built to the same style. However, that at Maxwell Park is one of the only station buildings in the whole of Glasgow to have survived, albeit very reconstructed in 2000, rather than being genuinely original brickwork. This though sums up the Maxwell Park area, traditional and elegant. In 2022, the most expensive street for housing in the Glasgow city area was Sherbrooke Avenue, just west of the station, with an average house price of just over a million pounds. Now, admittedly, there were only three sales in that period, but given the number of houses on the street, that's a fair indication of value. Sherbrooke Avenue is also home to the Sherbrooke Castle Hotel, which... Yes... John Morrison, a building contractor, built a villa for himself out of red sandstone in 1896 and designed it to look like a castle, complete with turrets and domed towers. It's on a small hill and is an impressive building even for the area. It was taken over by the Royal Navy in World War II and used as a radar training centre and became a hotel after the war. Also, fun fact, one of the other expansive and expensive villas in the area, on Maxwell Drive, is currently in use as a Pakistani consulate. Now, you'll notice the preponderance of Maxwell's here. And yes, you won't be surprised to learn, it's the same one. Maxwell Park itself is a small parkland just north of the station, which was given to the city in 1888 by, hmm, the very same Sir John Stirling Maxwell. In fairness, it's built on quite boggy land, which would have been unsuitable for building on at the time, but still. The park itself contains a lake, a series of tree-lined avenues, unlike both Queen's Park and especially Pollock Country Park, Most of the paths in Maxwell Park are either straight or at least geometric, a children's play area and a tree where a bandstand or fountain would have stood. My research has also brought up, although because I've walked through the park many times I've never noticed it, Maxwell Park is home to one of the many tiny forests in the country. This is a project by Earthwatch Europe, an environmental charity whose website says they have science at its heart. The idea behind the project is to plant very small pieces of woodland, say about the size of a tennis court, in urban areas, to allow the local people to connect with nature, be more aware of their environment and support urban wildlife. It's definitely focused towards children, but ultimately it's supposed to benefit and educate everybody. I saw an urban fox once in the streets between Shorelands and Pollock Country Park. It was about 4pm. Don't know who was more surprised, but it ran off before I could say hello, so I imagine it was him. I also saw one near Celtic Park in the east of the city, but that's a bit more open. It's post-industrial wasteland, so it's less strange. I also saw a deer in part of Creighton Cemetery just south of Govan once. There's certainly more urban wildlife around than you might imagine in a large city area. Just inside the park, on the east side, is Pollock Burgh Hall. Not to be confused with Pollock Burgh Hall, exactly one mile south-southwest. It was commissioned by and given to the people of Pollock Shields by, guess who and opened on the same day, in 1890, as the park itself. It had a much shorter life as a town hall than the one in neighbouring Pollock Shores, though. Glasgow took over this borough in 1891. Again, the City Council used it for a while, but it was given to a trust organisation in 1986, refurbished, and now serves as a community centre and wedding venue. It's built of dark red sandstone, is a Category A listed building, and, to the best of my knowledge, does not contain a Wurlitzer. South of the railway lies Titwood Cricket Ground. This is the home of Clydesdale Cricket Club, who, despite the name, had an important part to play in the history of Scottish football. They are, it seems, the oldest sporting club in Glasgow still playing, by the way, and as far as I'm aware, they have always played cricket. They had been playing at a site in Kinning Park, a shade less than a mile north of Maxwell Park Station, but they sold it in 1873 through a group of footballers from the West End, with the vague name of Rangers wonder what ever happened to them. Anyway, just before they moved, they founded a football club called Clydesdale FC. They didn't play for very long, they'd stopped by 1881, but in that time they were one of the founder members of the Scottish Football Association, the second oldest in the world, and indeed made the second largest donation to the cost of the Scottish Cup amongst those present. In addition, one of their members, Archibald Campbell, which, let's face it, is about as Scottish name as you can get before resorting to stereotypes, became the SFA's first chairman. They also lost in the first ever Scottish Cup final. To Queen's Park, obviously. So quite an influential club, if short-lived. As an aside, seven clubs founded the SFA on the 13th of March 1873 in a meeting in a place called Dewar's Hotel. This seems to have been at 11 Bridge Street, the address of which matches that of an Indian restaurant up the seventy-seven just south of the Clyde, though most of the building doesn't look that old. Apart from Queen's Park, Clydesdale and 3rd Lanarkshire Rifle Volunteers, the other clubs were Vale of Leaven, Dumbrec, which is just to the west of Maxwell Park, Easton and Granville. Only Queen's Park FC still exist and most of the others had dissolved by even the turn of the 20th century. An eighth club, Kilmarnock FC, who do still exist, sent a letter of support, presumably because all the others were Glasgow-based and Kilmarnock was, at that time, a bit of a trek. Anyway... Titwood Cricket Ground itself is notable, as not only do Clydesdale play there still, but it's also one of the designated grounds for Scotland's international cricket team. And before you say anything about cricket in the Scottish weather, let me tell you right now, at least in the cricket season, it's very unlikely you'll have a game stop for bad light. Sunset in Glasgow is after 10pm in the height of summer. We can just wait. Granted, the first international game scheduled there was one between India and Pakistan in July 2007, and it was entirely rained off, but still... And by the way, Scottish men's international cricketing side have recently just failed to reach the Cricket World Cup. They were defeated in what was effectively a playoff by the Dutch. And outside of the countries who, you know, actually play cricket, Netherlands are one of the best teams. So that's not a bad effort.
0: This is Pollock Shields West. The police are dealing with an incident near the railway.
1: In actual fact, the naming convention of these stations is a little off-kilter, as the area known as Pollock Shields traditionally started around the railways and headed west. Maxwell Park Station should really be called Pollock Shields West, and this one, possibly Strathbungo, which, as you won't recall, was the now-closed station on the line to Kilmarnock, which was literally on the other side of Darnley Road from Pollock Shields West Station. But anyway, this is the last station on the Cathcart Loop heading clockwise, and lies around 500 meters southwest of Pollock Shields East. North of here, the railway joins with the Kilmarnock Line, passes the East Station, and then closes in the loop. In the sense of joining the same track, there's no provision to actually close the loop, And even if there was, the layer to the track means that it would only be possible if you built a line between Pollock Shields West and Queen's Park stations. Incidentally, the shields part of the name here is from the word shillinga, which is a type of hut. They're mostly found in remote hilly farmland or moorland and are simple rectangular structures made of dry stone or turf and often have no windows. Kind of like a small bothy, I guess. Anyway, it implies that in pre-Glasgow times the land around the western side of the Cathcart Circle was quite boggy and damp with woodland in the south and a little farmland in the north where the land rises before dropping back again to meet the Clyde. Much of the area between the Pollock Shield Stations and Maxwell Park Station is a conservation area. It was built under the auspices of the Maxwell family, one or two generations before our old buddy John to create a suburb fit for habitation, basically, with quality housing of a stylish nature. While the Maxwell Park area in the west got the townhouses and the villas, the area around Pollock Shields West Station got fashionable and upmarket tenement flats, built along leafy suburban avenues. Many of the buildings were designed by notable architects, among them the previously mentioned Alexander Thompson and John Benny Wilson. To all intents and purposes, Pollock Shields would be described as a garden suburb. One question asked is, why did the Maxwells give so much to the city? One answer could be that they saw Glasgow expanding and wanted to control, or at least manage that expansion, so they didn't wake up one morning and find inner-city terraced housing on the fences of Pollock House. It is of course possible they saw the conditions of urban housing in Glasgow at the time. Cholera was rife and it's estimated by 1850 50% of people died before they were five and genuinely believed that, having the means to improve it, they felt they should. I ought to talk a bit about the tenements actually, since they're the dominant style of housing in Glasgow, especially around the Cathcart Circle area. They're actually found across Scotland but the ones in Glasgow mostly date from between the mid-Victorian period to the First World War. The one I currently live in seems to have been built around 1906 according to cross-referencing of local maps of the area. They're generally made from red or light orange sandstone, they're usually about three to four stories high and to take the street I live on as an example, like both sides of it are lined with one continuous building with no gaps but this is internally divided into several blocks. Each block contains maybe three flats on each floor, so while connected in principle to the rest of the street, in my block there are only 12 flats. Behind each tenement is a series of lawned area, and there's usually some kind of service road behind that to allow access for rubbish collections and the like. Though I'm 100% sure despite this in my block, the councilors simply come through the front door of the block and head directly to the back. Typically the entranceway to the tenement is tiled and very often the internal passageways are ornately decorated with big mosaic type windows and wide staircases. In the recent heatwave we had I noticed the entrance hall was the coolest place to be possibly due to the marble tiling and the staircase being open so all the heat rose up. And that's one of the notable features of tenements here, it's the height of the ceilings. I have to stand on a ladder to change a light bulb. The rooms tend to be a decent size and the one I'm in has two good sized bedrooms and a large living room we won't talk about the kitchen. Now, that's not to say that all tenements are the same. Indeed, many parts of Glasgow once were knocked down due to falling into disrepair or simply being too small for the size of the families living there. The ones near Pollock Shields West station, though, seem to be regarded as amongst the best in the whole of Scotland. It would be remiss of me to mention Pollock Shields and not talk about the community culture here. If you remember when I talked about Pollock Shields East, I said about the ethnic diversity of the area. The streets between the two Pollock Shield stations very much have a strong Pakistani and Indian vibe, and indeed the local library on Leslie Street, a Category B listed building built in 1907 and opened by yada yada, has a large selection of books and magazines in Urdu. A couple of months before I moved to Glasgow, an incident occurred in Pollock Shields that highlighted the community culture here, and probably sums up much of the vibe of Southside as a whole. As you may know, the UK's Home Office has an interesting policy on immigration, which, while not exactly no, isn't that much longer a sentence. Part of their policy is making it as difficult as possible to immigrate, to stay once having immigrated, and yet as easy as possible to remove people who fail to meet their exacting standards. One morning, the police, having got wind that there were two people whose immigration status was dubious, burst into houses in Pollock Shields, Kenmure Street, and arrested two Indian men for immigration violations, with the presumed intention of deporting them forthwith. One interesting point to note, these men had been living in Pollock Shields for 10 years. 10 years. Another important note, all of the men were Sikhs, the area has a largely Muslim population and this event took place around Eid al-Fitr, the celebration at the end of Ramadan. However, the local community, of all faiths and backgrounds, got wind of this and responded quickly, surrounding the police van, lying underneath the van, sitting in the road and generally just doing everything possible to prevent the police from leaving until they would released the two men. Despite extra police being called, enough residents and local activists were present to prevent them being able to do anything. By 5pm, the police gave up, moved them into a local mosque and released them. All feels a bit like a modern version of Cable Street, really.
0: This is Cross Maloof. We apologise for the inconvenience caused.
1: Now, see, I've mentioned a few times of the existence of another railway line in the area, off which the Cathcart Circle splits from in both directions. This is the line from Glasgow Central to Kilmarnock and East Kilbride, and within the loop formed by the Cathcart Circle, there is one railway station. It lies between Pollock Shields West and Shorelands, and the 470 or so metres straight line distance between it and Maxwell Park make it one of the smallest distances between railway stations in the whole of the Glasgow region, which, given how close many of the stations are to each other, the original premise of my explorations, don't forget, is quite an achievement. I'm also including it because I like the name. Cross Maloof. It's a cool word to say. Cross ma there are two origins to this name one is considerably more boring than the other the railway station as per all stations in scotland has the name in both english and gallic on the platforms and the gallic name for cross maloof is cross ma three words which translates as saint malieu's cross i don't know who Saint malieu was and nothing comes up in wikipedia but a web search indicates they're most noted having a church named after them in Inveraria in Argyll that's been converted into a large self-catering cottage. However, there's an urban myth that the name is a Scots rendition of Cross My Palm, as in with silver, and refers to one of the themes of this pod. Mary, Queen of Scots, is alleged to have met a fortune teller here who promised to divine her the results of the upcoming battle, or that by giving her a silver coin, she'd ensure the battle went Mary's way. Clearly, if that were true, she was fleeced. To that extent, outside the Corona Bar at the main junction in Crossaloof, where the road to Pollock Shores East meets the road to Mount Florida, there's both a small hand carved out of plaster, with a cross shape in the palm itself, above the entrance, and the same symbol in the tiles on the floor in front of the door. Opposite the Corona Bar, which will never cease to amuse me given that it was pretty much one of the first buildings I saw when I moved to Glasgow that wasn't a house, and given I moved here while there were still pandemic restrictions is a wide paved triangular area used by skateboarders and the occasional small Saturday food market. A similarly small craft market operates from a side alley across the main Kilmarnock Road, a few buildings further north. Beside the paved area though, and in front of the southwest edge of Queen's Park, is a building known as the Langside Halls. And this was built in 1847 and originally served as the National Bank of Scotland building. As befitted such an institution, it was ornately decorated inside and out with large windows across a whole frontage of two storeys built into large stone bricks surrounded by columns, there was a stained glass dome in the building's interior and decorative touches made by the unfortunately named John Thomas who also worked on the Houses of Parliament. Now, you might wonder why the National Bank of Scotland decided to build such a prestigious building in what was then the centre of a small village in rural Lanarkshire. And the answer is, they didn't. See, it was built in the centre of Glasgow, on Queen Street, and for 50 years this was fine. However, in the late 1890s, the bank felt they had to move out somewhere bigger. Normally, what would happen would be someone else would have moved in, and everything would continue as normal. However, two things prevented this from being quite as smooth as that. Firstly, it seems the new owners wanted to build something new in the location rather than to keep the old bank building as it was. Secondly, the Glasgow City Council felt that the new residential areas in Southside needed a public building. So rather than the new owners of the bank knocking down the old building, and the council building something new two miles away as two completely separate actions, which is what would normally have happened, an arrangement was made for the council to move the old bank building, brick by 70,000 brick, and rebuild it in Crossmaloof. It wasn't completely perfect, and things like the dome and some of the internal decor couldn't be rebuilt, partly because it was deemed too ostentatious for a public building, but to all intents and purposes the building was reconstructed pretty much exactly as it was, For the record, the building that replaced it on Queen Street was the Guild Hall, which, if you look at it, fits exactly as well with the surroundings as you might expect, and you'd never know that it wasn't supposed to be there. Meanwhile, the National Bank of Scotland got premises on Buchanan Street that looked equally as benefiting, so everybody won. And in the move, the old bank building was renamed Langside Halls to reflect its new location near the Battle of Langside and on the edge of Queen's Park. Sadly, time has not been kind to Langside Halls, and the interior of the building is in need of renovation and repair. It's been closed to the public since 2017, with no sign of anything significant being done to it in the meantime. Local community groups keep pushing for something to be done about it, but so far, nothing seems in the pipeline. Attention please. Please leave the station immediately. Well, that's about all for this pod. Join me next time for another adventure beyond, beyond the bridge. <laughs> Until then, take good care of your highland cows. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot backpackercom If you want to contact me, tweet me at RTW Barefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backbacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Uh, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.